Exodus chapter 20, verse 15 says, you shall not steal. I won't read all the other commandments again today because I want to read one or two other bits of scripture as well. Uh, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, has the amazing story of Zacchaeus. And this is what it says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see Jesus, sorry, he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. You still with me? You can understand. We're still into thievery, robbery, stealing. Um, this is the bit where it gets more uncomfortable. <clears throat> Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. This is the uh, last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says this. Uh, God speaking to his people. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Series so far, Ten Commandments, the, the, the Ten Commandments given by God to the people of Israel through Moses, along with a number of other commandments that followed, but the Ten Commandments were the key moral code of the people. They were given for the children of Israel as they uh, crossed the wilderness towards the Promised Land and to be the kind of bedrock on which the whole nation was to be founded. They were the basis upon which the, the people of the day, the Jewish people, were to be judged as to how they kept the law. But they're also expressions of God's heart. God doesn't change. Okay, we, we say, oh, well, yes, this was for, for, for them then. That's true. But the fundamental heart of God is expressed in these commandments. And although we are not judged by them as Christian believers, we are not judged by them as Christian believers. All right? They nevertheless express something of the heart of God and principles undergirding how he wants society to function. We are judged by what we do with Jesus. 
and his sacrifice for us. And Jesus fulfilled all the law in himself so that we wouldn't be judged by it. It's called grace. And if we lose sight of that, we'll gradually allow these commandments to hammer us down into a kind of legalistic squashness. Is it a word squashness? But you know, hammer us down into a squirming. And that's not what God wants us to do today. So the obvious meaning of the passage, the obvious meaning of the commandment, uh, do not steal, is this. Do not steal. All right? Don't take anything that rightfully belongs to someone else. Now this is probably where the sermon should end. Explained it. It's still valid. We can go home. But more is expected of me, and in fairness, the Bible has more to say. There's some fascinating bits in the Bible as to what God expects of us in response to, to him and his grace. For example, uh, on the basis of not stealing itself, in Ephesians 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 28, Paul says this, anyone who has been stealing, and he's talking to Christians now, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. Which is an interesting twist. So basically, the Bible says this. If you're sinning, stop it. Now that may seem a little bit twee, a little bit too simplistic, but it is actually the fundamental teaching of the New Testament. You may say, well, temptation's too great. It's not as simple as that. Of course, there's more to be added in terms of explanation, but the basic root is this, God still disapproves of sin. He still disapproves of stealing. He still disapproves of adultery. And God would say to Christian people, if you're involved in something which is wrong, if you're involved in stealing, for example, stop it. Ah, there's the problem. You see, if, if uh, as I commented on the, uh, in the adultery devotions, if sin wasn't pleasurable, it wouldn't be tempting, would it? And therein is our problem. Do we want to stop it? Do we want to stop doing that which is wrong? Do we want to lay aside one kind of pleasure that we may fully embrace a totally different and deeper kind of pleasure? Now there are implications behind this commandment for nations. Nations uh, God holds accountable for how they treat other nations, whether they rob them or not, for uh, businesses and firms and multinational corporations and you could apply this all over the place and if if you're a discerning reader of newspapers or watchers of the news you will know that almost certainly there are an awful lot of guilty companies and nations out there and god will hold them accountable but the main thrust is personal morality the main thrust is what you and i do with what god gives us and with what god has given other people but there is, before we get into some of the more subtle bits, there is a, a wider Christian aspect to this. In Matthew chapter 5, and verse 38 to 42, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something which I think ought to just make us pause before we simply say, don't take what isn't yours. This is what he says. 
You've heard it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist the evil, an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Hmm. And that kind of turns the whole stealing thing on its head for the Christian, doesn't it? You know, what's mine is mine, and you've got no right to it. Yeah? Well, actually, New Testament-wise, what's yours is yours, and I've got no right to it. What's mine is mine, but you do have a right to it. Because God has placed on the Christian believer a responsibility of generosity, a responsibility of care, even a responsibility of being willing to suffer at the hands of others who do wrong, partly, I think, biblically, because A, very often people have need, but B, in doing that, you actually increase the level of their guilt before God that would bring them to repentance. That's what part of this is what it's about. So really, I just share that to say, look, Let's not get into the materialistic jungle mentality. We live in that kind of culture. The whole of Western culture is, is, is sex-obsessed and money-obsessed. It's just what we're surrounded by. It's very hard to get our head away from that. But we're called to be something very different within our society, and we're called to turn away from the acquisitiveness, the gaining, 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 at all costs, that I will gain more for myself. That's not what the Christian is called to do. We rejoice in what gives us, but we hold it lightly. And we make sure that it's available to God and available to others under his hand. Hmm, are you uncomfortable yet? You think, well, I can't be right, can it? Because people would take advantage of that. You know, I have nothing left. Maybe. But there again, we then come to this business of trusting God, which then raises the other issue which comes from our reading about robbing God. Now, interestingly, when I prepared all this, I had no idea that Andy was going to be talking about the building and the financial needs of the building. So please don't think this is some sort of conspiracy to try to squeeze money out of you. It's nothing at all, nothing like that. We can rob God in all sorts of ways. We rob God when we deprive him of the love he deserves. Anyone who does not love God is robbing God. He is our creator. He is our maker. We owe all things to him. We owe love to him. People who refuse to love him are robbing him of what is rightfully his. We rob God when we hold back from him our worship and the honor which is due his name. I think it's one of the reasons why we're told in Scripture not to forsake meeting together. Uh, yes, we can worship in other ways. Of course we can. But there's something about meeting together to declare the praises of God, which is, which is quite unique and, and quite remarkable. And when we withdraw from that and withdraw from this spirit of praise and thanksgiving, we're actually robbing what belongs to him. But we also rob God whenever we refuse to give him first place in any part of our lives. 
because he deserves first place in any part of our lives. And on that basis, as other preachers have stood here week by week and pointed out, guess what? We're all guilty. Once more, we're all guilty. Thank God for grace. But the question is not to be, uh, the issue is not being condemned by that. The issue is then to say, okay, so how can I grow at being better in terms of how God wants me to respond to him? Malachi has this picture of God telling his people that they were robbing him by not bringing all the tithes into his storehouse. The Israelites were required to give a tenth, sometimes more, of all that they had. Uh, that was part of the deal of their wealth. That was mainly produce, of course. They're required to bring that to God. It was there to use for all sorts of purposes, but the main purposes was the continuance of worship and the, uh, uh, when the temple was built, the use of the temple and the support of priests and all that kind of stuff. That was the requirement. And other gifts were to be given on top of that. And over the years, what happened was that these people found all sorts of conscience-salving ways not to do that to keep more and more of what was rightfully God's and say, well, I'm not guilty because this, is, this doesn't qualify because it's, it's bound by that oath or this doesn't qualify because it's bound by that promise and, and I can get out of what God expects of me because, of course, God knows that that's not practical anyway. And God says through Malachi, you're robbing me. But he says something more profound, and here we're going to have to tread very carefully as we build towards the climax of all this. You're not just robbing me, but you are withholding from yourself a level of blessing that would totally blow your mind. Hmm. That's uncomfortable as well, isn't it? But because of all this, because they were robbing God in this way, their relationship with God was impoverished, their attitude was a, a hindrance uh, to all sorts of things. Now, interestingly, the New Testament never diminishes this. It doesn't take away from this concept. Tithing, by the way, went back long before Moses. Tithing wasn't part of what was required in the law, of, well, it was required in the law of Moses, but it wasn't invented then. It actually goes back to the Abraham covenant, long, long time before. It goes, goes right back to the root of man's relationship with God. Legalistic tithing for us as Christians, you know, God requires you to give a tenth if you're after. I always put an Irish accent when I do that. I apologize um, to all Irish people everywhere. Must be certain influences I had when I was growing up. Um, legalistic tithing is not a helpful thing to impose on God's people today in terms of you must. But the principle of God having first place in financial matters is vital if we are to be disciples because if we miss that, we are robbing God. And it's probably a reasonable response uh, of love to God, as far as I'm concerned anyway, to be more generous than a legalistic requirement. Paul tells the Corinthians that what they give should be carefully thought through, it should be generous, it should be sacrificial, it should be joyful. All those principles are there in the New Testament. But here, I need to just pause and say, look, I'm not preaching prosperity doctrine here. Okay. Prosperity doctrine is a simple twist of a biblical truth that 
makes it grotesque. Prosperity doctrine, doctrine teaches this. The more you give to God, the more God will give you. Therefore, the sign of God's blessing is that you are rich. If you are a Christian, God wants you to be rich. Therefore, give your money in order to get rich. It's nonsense, and it totally turns on its head the whole principle on, on which the, the, the Bible is founded. Uh, our goal in serving God and honoring God is not personal gain. Our goal isn't that we might suddenly prosper and go, look, look how blessed I am, look how many rings I've got in my fingers. One, actually. But you know what I mean? That's not what it's about. But the problem is this. You know it's not, that's not what it's about. I know it. We're offended by it, and we're so offended by it, we take a biblical principle and we throw it out the window. Because the biblical principle remains. God can be trusted to provide if we put him first. That's Bible. And in case you think I'm getting into heresy here, wouldn't be the first time, but in case you think I'm getting into heresy here, uh, let me remind you again of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 from verse 25. Challenging words, these. Few words challenge you more than these words, actually, in the Bible. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone, uh, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You've heard sermons of this often enough to know that God's not saying, don't go to work, don't use your common sense. He's not saying, you know, just go and wait for God to do something. But he's talking about where your trust is and where your priorities are and where your heart is. And the principle is really simple. We put God first, his kingdom, his righteousness, and he provides. Ever so simple. Yeah, I'll take a little bit of extra time just, just to give a couple of practical examples. Uh, the building example, uh, uh, I mentioned the, the church at Woodley and, and trying to raise all that money in those days. It was uh, astonishing what God did. And we were blessed. I, I put this in the devotionals. So we'll come again during the week. We were blessed when a, a, a much larger church than ours, which had a much bigger building project, tithed all the money that was given to their building project to give to other causes. And we were beneficiaries of some of that tithe. We were so blessed by that, we thought we should do the same thing. And we did. And yes, we borrowed some of the money, and uh, eventually I left the church, but within 
within a few years of me leaving the church, that which was borrowed over 25 years had been paid back in less than 10. And the church had grown. God blessed priorities being right. And on a personal note, uh, when we first, uh, when I first came into uh, ministry, uh, realistically we couldn't afford it. Um, the church at Woodley didn't have a manse or anything like that, so we, a mortgage was negotiated for us at a very favorable rate, which we knew we couldn't afford, but we, we took anyway. And each, each year I'd, I'd do the, the budgeting and work it out and realize that we couldn't live. But I b believed before that in tithing anyway, so we, we tithed uh, our income after tax. Uh, and God saw us through it each year. I'd do our sums. Isn't that amazing? We've got more than we started with. How come? And then we came to ministry, of course. We thought, I mean, that was true before ministry. When we came to ministry, uh, it got worse with, with those problems. And I thought, well, if I'm asking God for a miracle, I might as well ask him for a big one. And I don't see why the tax man should come first. So we decided to tithe our growth, gross income, because uh, we knew we couldn't manage anyway. Uh, and it was astonishing. Uh, even now to this day, I cannot possibly tell you how those finances worked out. I know our kids were dressed, uh, dressed from jumble cells. Uh, they were on preschool meals. All that, and I, I take, there's no shame in that, by the way, at all. The fact that my parents were Salvation Army officers and had some good jumble was, was all right. Anyway, and <laughs> <laughs> even, even down to somebody in the church having a, a son who got sent designer jeans from, this, from Canada or the States, I can't remember, and uh, he outgrew them so quickly they all went down to our son. Isn't that amazing? Dressed in designer. Just the little things, the big things, and God provided, and God provided, and God provided. I just want to say, he does. He does. And God doesn't expect us all to suddenly go out and be silly and start throwing money that we can't afford, unless he calls us to specifically. But he does call us to put him first. How you will do that will be up to you. This is not a, a legalistic thing. Everybody must work it out for themselves, what they believe God would have them do. But money is part of the deal as a disciple. So what should we do? This is not a typical sermon from me, but you'll appreciate I'm, I'm meandering my way through as best I can. Simple. If you're stealing from other people, stop doing it. That helps. That includes the tax man, by the way. It includes expenses at work. And so on. It includes benefits, actually. Where possible, you're now wondering, you're wondering why Zacchaeus was mentioned. Where possible, if you've stolen before, give restitution. Zacchaeus was so overwhelmed by what Jesus had done for him and accepting him and loving him that he said, I'll pay back four times. And that was after he'd said, I'll give half of what I, what I possess to the poor. This was no chore for Zacchaeus now. It was a sheer desire. So when God touches our heart, restitution's important. And of course, we promote and work for integrity and finance in companies and governments and all those things we need to be. But most of all this morning, what I want to say to you is give God that which is his due in every area of life. Someone once said, that the last thing in a disciple, or the last two things in a disciple to be affected by God, 
is the right foot, if you're a driver, and your bank account. Biblically, it is impossible to be made poorer in the fullest sense of that by putting God's fir God first because God has already given more than we could ever deserve. But he does keep his promises. And in case people are feeling a bit squirmy here, and, and I'm finishing with this, I just want to give one more example because this is not a call to be foolish. Uh, a man became a Christian in one of the churches I led uh, quite remarkably, his wife was a Christian, he was very anti, became a Christian, was so overwhelmed, he said, I'll immediately start tithing. And I, I, I wanted to spend time with him, but he said, no, no, I've got to do this. And shortly afterwards, his wife came to me and said, we're in a total mess on budget bankruptcy. So I went and talked to him, and I said, what's the problem? He said, well, I, I had all these debts, you see. He lived on debt, credit card debts and all that sort of stuff. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. Do you not think that honoring God would have been to pay those who owe, you owe to first? And then sort that out. I said, do you think so? I said, yeah, I think so. So we worked on a plan together where he could pay off his debts bit by bit by bit. Yes, giving to the Lord's work and increasing that as the debts got paid off until he was able to tithe the way he wanted to. So this is not a call to stupidity. It's a call to putting God first. And it's not just about money, it's about everything. Where you live, who you marry, what you're gonna do with your life. Because all these things we owe to God. Let's pray. Father, wonderful thing about these commandments is that they do tend to put the finger on different issues in our lives that need sorting out at different times. And I simply pray that you would give us the wisdom and the grace and the mercy to allow you to work in us by your spirit that these things might be put right and that, me, that we might walk with you in clarity of conscience, conscience and openness. Lord, help us to put you first in all things. Help us not to steal in any way and help us to walk in the freedom and blessing that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.